I'm a huge fan of Mixapp, ACP's medical knowledge self-assessment program. It provides the latest, most comprehensive educational content needed by internists today. Visit acponline.org forward slash MKSAP18 to learn more about Mixapp18. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Curbsiders, and that sweet silence, Paul. <laughs> Yet again, the great Dr. Stuart Brigham couldn't be here tonight, but it's kind of amazing how the absence of the interruption throws you off your game. Like there was just a moment there where you weren't quite sure what to do with yourself, and I, I think that's special. It does. I, I am excited, Paul. Tonight we talk seizures with Dr. Sarah Dewitt, and. Before we tell you all about her, Paul, what is it that we do on this show? Can you remind the audience in case they haven't heard about it? And actually, you know what? Before you do that, Paul, I should remind them that this episode and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And now, Paul, please tell them, what do we do? No important stuff. But as a reminder, in case you didn't know, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, tonight, we have another astounding expert, uh, Dr. Sarah DeWitt, who's going to talk us through uh, management of seizure disorder and epilepsy, which I think is a topic that fills uh, most internists with a little bit of dread. Uh, or at least, again, that's probably my usual projection. At least fills <laughs> me with a little bit of dread. I'm not sure how you do, Wado. I, uh, anything neuro, I am scared. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> But I feel, I feel better about this now. As always, my, my baseline anxiety has been tamped down ever so slightly um, thanks to our, an amazing guest. So let me tell you about Dr. DeWitt. Dr. Witt is an assistant professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic. She's got a unique background in medical education, biomedical research, and Six Sigma process improvement with a focus on quality patient care. Prior to earning her Doctor of Medicine from the University of Kansas, Dr. Witt graduated from Scripps College with a BA in molecular biology. After medical school, she graduated from the Neurology Residency Program at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, where she served as chief resident. Her advocacy for patient care resulted in a 2016 Acts of Human Kindness Award. That's nice. Her clinical interests include quality improvement, healthcare disparities, and innovative healthcare technology as it relates to brain disease. She is passionate about eliminating healthcare disparities and building initiatives to enhance diversity in the medical profession through mentorship. And she is also an amazing speaker about seizure disorder, epilepsy, and how the general internist can help uh, manage and help their friendly neighborhood epileptologists. So without further ado, Dr. DeWitt. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Really excited to talk to you tonight. And before we get on to talking about seizures, tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe tell them something cool that you're up to outside of medicine. Well, thank you all for having me. Um, I am an assistant professor in neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm also a clinical neurophysiology fellow, completing a one-year fellowship. So I would say I have a special interest in medical education, in wellness and kind of mentorship and something about me while I enjoy traveling and spending time with my family. Yeah. And uh, which 
any specific travel spots uh, or favorite destinations? I think you were telling us a little bit about that in pre-recording. Um, yeah, so I, I recently was able to go to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia on a global health elective, which was an incredible positive experience and, uh, and help practice neurology in that kind of setting. And then on uh, probably my favorite place is uh, Menorca, Spain, which is uh, a small little Mediterranean island, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Paul? So, I, yeah, I feel like I've, I've made this joke over and over again, but I'm actually, I'm slowly excavating myself through my, my backlog of books that I'm supposed to be reading. So I, I'm still now open to new book recommendations. So it doesn't have to be medically uh, related necessarily, but just a book that you think I might enjoy. A non-medical book, I would have to say uh, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. I highly recommend uh, that one. And then a book that I've enjoyed and I I do recommend to uh, patients is the Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living by Dr. Amit Sood. That's a really good resource. Oh, and for whom and what, what is included in that? So what is what is the general thrust of it? Yeah, so it, it walks through a number of ways to uh, cope with challenges in life. And I think it's been a challenging time for everyone. <laughs> yes. So I've, had to, I've definitely uh, reread that one, too. That I, I have not heard of that one before. The Trevor Noah book, that's that is getting higher and higher on my list because it's been recommended to me now by at this point by multiple people. And uh he's been doing some great work during the pandemic as well. So I think uh that that is that is high on my list. Can you tell us what is uh, during your time in training, what has been uh some favorite advice that you've had? It could be any time in training, even elementary school, if you had a really wise <laughs> first grade teacher or something like that. Yeah, I would have to say what comes to mind is uh, trust, but always verify. Yes, especially uh, especially early in the academic year. Uh, that is always, <laughs> <laughs> that's always important. <laughs> so Paul, uh, it's been a while. Any picks of the week from you? Yeah, I think have you have you have you been manking it up? Do you know Mank? Have I you watched Mank? I've heard of this, but I I have no idea. Yeah, I you know I think and again I, I I'm sorry to keep perpetually dating our podcast, but I feel like especially um, since COVID, there's been no new good art. Like there's been a lot of stuff, but like nothing that I've been very excited about. Like it's all been kind of good enough, or it will kill some time as I'm trying to distract myself from how bummed out I am about everything. But like Mank is actually. It's a 2020 movie by David Fincher, whom I love, starring Gary Oldman, whom I also love, about Herman J. Mankiewicz, uh, the guy who actually wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane, and initially part of his deal was not taking credit for it. And and Mankiewicz struggled with his alcohol use and um, had a complicated relationship with sort of movie making and movie makers. And it's just, it's a beautiful movie. It's shot in black and white, but the cinematography is gorgeous. Oldman's performance is amazing. The score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, I believe, is, is spectacular. Like, the performances are great. It's just, it's so nice. It's not a masterpiece by any means, but it's just so nice to see something good for a change and not something that's just good <laughs> enough to actually waste two hours of my life. So, like, it, it was a real genuine pleasure to watch after a lot of mediocrity. So I, I'm going to heartily recommend Mank if you haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, Paul, I, I really think you have, you know, if it, if it ever falls through in medicine, maybe maybe becoming a movie critic, uh, it's... It, I know you're not using notes to read this. Uh, it just it comes off very uh, polished somehow. It's it's always impressive. Um, so to follow that up, I was going to just give a very quick review. I'm a, a very quick recommendation. I'm 
I'm reading Andre Agassi's book, which is at this point, I think it might be like 10 years old or more, but it's called Open. It's an autobiography. And it's it's just a really interesting read, especially if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, thinking about Andre Agassi uh, wearing a t- wearing a <laughs> toupee, uh, wearing a toupee, and uh, dating Brooke Shields and driving fast cars, all these things. Um, but he's he he he's like really honest in the book, and he talks about just thinking about what these what a professional athlete goes through, uh, uh, and particularly uh, someone who was raised as a child playing tennis and then getting to the highest level. I think it's just a really great story. So people should check that out. That's really funny since speaking of athletes, I'm uh, our family's recently watching. I'm probably the last person that hasn't seen it, but the Michael Jordan oh, yeah. documentary series on Netflix. Still not. The Last yeah. Dance. It's yeah. amazing. Paul, it's, it's incredible. It's very, incredible. it's very good. I, I mean, it's, it's, I, it covers a large chunk of my childhood or sort of development. Like I should be deeply interested <laughs> in it, but I just, I have not gotten around to it yet. It's probably the last basketball game I've, I've seen. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I might be with you on that one. I, I think that's probably around the time I stopped watching as well. <laughs> Our sponsor is Mixap, ACP's medical knowledge self-assessment program. It's the internal medicine go-to resource for continuous learning and board preparation. I know I always love using MixApp. I'm such a nerd that I actually gain lots of enjoyment by using their questions when I'm preparing for my board exams. You can test yourself with over 3,000 board-like multiple choice questions. I love how you can either use exam mode where you go through the questions in a timed fashion and see the answers afterwards or study mode where you can test yourself and see the response right away. MixApp Complete is the best value because you get 11 printed sections with digital access, plus MixApp Complete includes 2,000 digital flashcards, virtual DX with 400 multimedia-based questions to test your visual acumen, and board basics. MixApp has also just added a really cool new feature. You can highlight text in multiple different colors, and then you can organize that and view your highlights by section. MixApp is my favorite tool for board preparation, so visit acponline.org forward slash MixApp18 to sign up today. That's acponline.org forward slash MixApp18. Well, let's let's get into a case, and as always, I think, well, I guess I have to read this, Paul, because I think you're part of this case. So uh, case one, these are, these are written by Beth Garbs Garbatelli, by the way. So Dr. Paul Williams is walking into, uh, Sarah, let's say Paul here is walking into Cashlack Hospital, and in the lobby, there's a medical emergency. There's somebody, looks like they're in their 20s, uh, maybe 30s, with, uh, there's a huddle of people around them, and it seems like this person's pale, they're sweaty, eyes are rolled back in their head, and their whole body is moving rhythmically. And... uh, Something actually like this happened to Paul. I don't think it was in clinic, but recently, Paul, didn't didn't something like this happen you were telling us? Yeah, I, I won't go into too many of the details, but like it's not, you know, I, I think in terms of our training, it's you, we've witnessed seizures in the hospital and there's something satisfying, not satisfying, but you're in this controlled environment. You can scream things like, get me out of van, you can call rapid <laughs> response. You have some, you have some kind of control over the situation, but this was actually just out in my day-to-day life. And it's, it's a whole different thing then. And I, I think talking to another colleague, I feel like, Seizures are just, if you don't have familiarity with them, a really scary thing to witness. And that's, that I think, presumably what we're dealing with here. So not having any of the comforts of the hospital where I could just call a neurologist over and be like, now what do I do? 
um, it was just a whole different kind of experience where I, I, you know, it's my main thing was just making sure everybody was being safe and that no one was panicking more than they needed to. But I, I wonder before we get rolling, um, I'm not sure if you meant to pitch the question to me or not, Matt, but I'm just going to go ahead and roll with it. Before we get started, if you could even tell us sort of basic fundamental stabilization principles for if someone should happen to witness a, a presumed seizure out in the wild and how, what are the initial first steps we should take and how should we deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, kind of a house of God reference, always check our own pulse. <laughs> first. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Um, but I think the, the key is to stay with the person. So until they're awake and alert and um, hopefully acting their usual state, if you can start timing, if, you know, if, if this is a person that you are known to have epilepsy or, or even if you, like you said, more out in the wild, if you can start timing the seizure, um, remaining calm, check if you, if there's like a medical ID. And then the, the biggest thing that I will counsel patients as well is maintaining their safety. So um, or their or their significant other, for example, making sure that they're uh, on their side, for instance, and and if this happened like at home in bed, you know, not facing uh, prone in the pillow, um, trying to, or if they're cooking something, you know, hopefully helping them drop down to the side. And so I think I think that's the biggest thing is like the safety element, and then of course like the resuscitation aspect, making sure that the patient or the person is not having any, you know, difficulty breathing the airway, you know, the ABCs typically. And so I mentioned the timer specifically because we tend to get a bit worried when seizures are lasting longer than five minutes typically. And so uh, there's a higher likelihood of requiring intravenous medication. So if you can have that timer, again, the majority of seizures will subside in a, after a few minutes. And then also I think having a low kind of, you know, threshold to call 911 or an ambulance if the person's not coming to, to the usual state, um, if they're injured, because that's a huge, huge aspect for patients who have epilepsy, you know, physical health and any kinds of uh, injuries that they might sustain. If the person starts clustering and having repeated seizures, those are kind of the main kind of caution. But you don't have to, uh, the, the, the old wives tale, so they speak, about putting something in their mouth, they're going to swallow their tongue. You know, you don't have right. to put anything in there. <laughs> Please don't stick your fingers in their mouth. <laughs> Absolutely not. Don't don't try to restrain them or anything like that. And then, you know, if if a healthcare professional has like a rescue agent, you know, if if it's a certain time period that has passed, you can put that in over their cheek area so that it can be easily absorbed. For example, like clonazepam um, wafers. So that's kind of my scheme or approach to um, triaging. The timer thing's genius, um, just because it's subjectively, it feels like it's lasting four and a half hours. So I think like when you're in the moment, it just, you have no idea how time's passing when there's sort of panic and people are upset. So that, that's incredibly helpful. And in terms of the, the post-dictal period, let's say the, the seizure resolves and then the patient's eventually coming to sort of any recommendations in terms of people getting up, walking around, sort of what, what sort of stabilization you do once the, the acute phase is over? Yeah, I think it depends if this is a first-time seizure or um, if this is a patient with, uh, you know, chronic epilepsy. It, it's all kind of individualized. So, if it's a first-time seizure, I, I, I would certainly recommend getting, uh, you know, an urgent evaluation. Um, and the longer, you know, somebody who has epilepsy, for example, is able to to understand maybe if this was 
out of the ordinary if they had excellent seizure control. And then this was a breakthrough out, you know, well, well controlled for 10 years, for example. Um, you know, I think that that warrants a certain investigation. And then there are, you know, epileptic syndromes, for example, where the frequency is even much higher. So it's, it's, it's all dependent on how the person's seizure baseline is. One other thing pertinent to this that we, we had talked about a little bit in pre-recording, I had come across the, the recommendation in my reading to try to film the, like try to take a video, if you can safely do so, that you should try to, to video these seizure episodes. And probably this is more for chronic seizures, but I guess, you know, if someone's having what this sounds like a grand mal seizure, you probably don't want to just like pull out your cell phone video and not help them. But that is something, if there's enough people around, it might be helpful to have video of it just for when they do get to a medical professional, they can show them what was happening. Is that something, how often are people actually bringing you cell phone video these days? Oh, yeah. That's that's incredible because I love watching the the videos that patients will uh, bring in. It's extremely helpful, too, when somebody might have multiple different types of episodes. So I like to just call them spells. Um, if if somebody has any kind of paroxysmal event um, of unclear etiology, so uh, a seizure, of course, being falling in that differential. So the differential being so wide, it kind of helps tell you, okay, were there signs? Maybe it was this syncope, for example, or convulsive syncope. Was this um, maybe having features, atypical f- features of a seizure? Could it be consistent with a non-epileptic event? And so I, I'm a big fan of cell phone videos. So what, you, you started to give it to us a little bit there. So what's what's your differential for someone like this, uh, this patient that we presented you? He's in his 20s and 30s. He's on the ground moving rhythmically with his eyes rolled back. What sort of things are you thinking about that this might be? Yeah, so um, fortunately, I, I, I co-authored a, a, a chapter on, on this kind of topic with <laughs> <laughs> um, a Dr. Joseph Triskowski as well. So the differential I like to think about as, for example, like cardiac, there's neurologic and um, other. Mm-hmm. Essentially not that those are the two most important <laughs> systems of the body, but, you know, so so kind of working through the cardiac. If, if anybody has, again, we're talking about paroxysmal events, so a cardiac dysrhythmia, you know, can, can mimic um, these types of symptoms. If they have some kind of dysautonomia, kind of falls in there. Of course, there's like a a wide array of neurologic uh, conditions. Movement disorders can mimic it. Um, Sleep disorders, uh, cataplexy, for example, migraine. You can have uh, transient global amnesia. TIAs, uh, very commonly, I think, um, are are evaluated in the hospital setting. Syncope. And then there's, there's kind of like the other, you know, condition. Could you have like a vestibulopathy? For instance, a non-epileptic event like a psychogenic non-epileptic event, panic disorder, and 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 so forth. But those are kind of like the main classes. How how I help myself <laughs> in triaging these cases. When we went, probably just a touch out of order. I, I think just by the nature of the case, I, I wonder if we could go back for for simpleton me and actually just define our term. So you know, I, I think you were sort of careful to not say seizure necessarily. And then there's, you hear seizure disorder, and then there's epilepsy. And I feel like there's a little bit, there's probably some nuance between using those terms and some specificity. So um, could you just sort of go back in the most fundamental basic ways, kind of define seizure, seizure disorder, epilepsy, and then maybe we could sort of uh, build our discussion from there. 
Yeah, thank you. So, so seizures are transient, you know, paroxysmal events. Unfortunately, we can't we can't plan them. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to have one at three o'clock, <laughs> so I can go home. I can prepare. These are like so disruptive to somebody's life, the quality of life. You can imagine. And so I, I kind of think about them based on their their symptoms. So you'll have some level of alteration of of consciousness potentially. Um, motor, sensory, or autonomic, and then there's there's also kind of like the um, uh, psychic, like deja vu, for example, manifestations um, that are reported. So there's seizure, and then epilepsy. Epilepsy is a chronic neurologic disorder, and there is a formal definition by the International League Against Epilepsy, which is the the old definition is having had two unprovoked seizures more than 24 hours apart. And now, currently, the criteria includes even having, you know, one unprovoked seizure with a higher risk of recurrence, greater than 60%, or, or being having a diagnosis of a, an epileptic syndrome, like a juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, for, for instance. So, so that's kind of the definition. So epilepsy being recurrent seizures, they're very, very common. And then another term that I wanted to to clarify too is is drug resistant epilepsy because like the gambit of treatments really opens up for patients who have tried adequate like for example two medications adequate trials or did not you know tolerate to to achieve some some kind of seizure freedom so that that's by definition drug resistant epilepsy and and those patients are very kind of uh, well served on their kind of the referral path to seeing like a neurologist or an epileptologist for for additional treatments. And I think, I guess there's a number of ways we can take this. So with within uh, types of seizures, for us as internists or in primary care, how important is it or to what extent do you think we need to know about the, the categories underneath seizure? Yeah. So um, I think I always like kind of the big picture. So mm-hmm. um, thinking about it, like, for example, where's the problem? Um, so is it a focal epilepsy, meaning it's coming from one part of the brain and staying there or it can spread with or without associated um, impaired awareness? And then there's kind of the generalized epilepsies. So coming on at the same time. And then there's there's a category of unknown and and you know infantile spasms and other kind of things that can cause it. But those are kind of the the main classification that I think about. And of course the etiologies differ. So focal epilepsy being the most common, about two thirds of patients will have focal epilepsies. Um, and and I point this out because clinically it helps in treating these these patients. So um, the medications, if for example, if you don't know what's going on, then picking a more broad anti-seizure uh, medication is going to probably be the best option until you're able to, you know, to identify what's going on. So, Paul, I don't know about you, but I find it always a little bit intimidating and just to take the history and try to figure out, was this a seizure or not? But that that seems to be something that is just, is hard, is hard to do in general. I don't, I don't know if that's just my experience. Oh, no, for sure. I think that the, the classic seizure syncope debate i feel like rages on <laughs> annoying admissions so i feel like extra just automatic neurology consult as they roll their eyes and they're like oh god not again and i was just i had to laugh the, the sort of cardiac versus non-cardiac seizure mimics i'm just there have to be cardiologists high-fiving across the country as they listen to this episode now that's <laughs> that feels in, completely in keeping with a certain worldview yeah like, oh, um, what were you taught about like syncope with 
with like some seizure activity, what have you been taught reliably how to recognize that? I don't know that I ever was. No, not reliably. Like, it's, it, well, sometimes you can see jerking with syncope, and you're like, "Well, that doesn't help me at all." Like now, now what? Now, <laughs> yeah, but now, for how long? Bite their is tongue, it... <laughs> and, right, and where do they bite their tongue? And it postictal, not postictal, and that's not really a good um, determination. So, uh, so to answer your question, the short version is, I won't blame. I won't say I wasn't taught it well. Maybe a better way to say it is, I just didn't learn it well. So I, I will take any pointers that are offered this this episode. Yeah. No, you guys bring up an amazing point because it's a very common consultation and just. Um, evaluation in the clinic too. So things that I think about when evaluating the syncope versus um, potentially a seizure-like event, you know, is the event provoked by pain? Do they have a cardiac history, um, you know, history of, uh, of an MI or cardiac dysrhythmia? So that that's a very frequent thing that we, we do see, for example, in our elective, like in our epilepsy monitoring unit, patients will come in for these paroxysmal events, and their goal um, is to be able to identify what's going on. So we have a continuous video EEG that's happening, and very frequently do we diagnose cardiac, you know, third-degree heart block, for example, or, you know, somebody becomes asystolic, and that's why they have a, fu- a funny spell. So it's, it's, it's very frequent that we do see that. But with, with syncope, I guess, you know, the duration of the episodes help, you know, was the, was, what was the person doing? Were they exerting themselves uh, beforehand, you know, postprandial, kind of the, the other clinical aspects? Were they in the bathroom? I feel like the bathroom is always, yeah, the ba- it's always, it's always variably. a dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had. We, this is just a a brief tangent. We had this guy uh, at one of the host, one of the cash lacks that I worked at uh, many years back, and he just kept crashing his car because he had cough syncope, and he would just like, oh my god. And I think he was maybe maybe he was even it was a crazy story. Maybe he was even smoking, but he'd just be like he'd start to cough, and then he'd go into these coughing fits, and like at least half the time he would pass out. But he he just like would not stop driving. <laughs> And uh, I saw him on one of these admissions where he'd like run through so his neighbor's fence or something like that in his pickup truck. So yeah, yeah it's, it's oh no, that that was a a bit more clear cut. We were pretty sure he wasn't having seizures there, but it's not always that it's it's not always that clear cut. So Wado, I I don't talk about this a lot, but I, I I know that you know this about me. I became a vegetarian not too long ago, not for any health reasons, but because the idea of eating things that might miss their mothers made me sad. And <laughs> the thing that no one told me is that you can be a vegetarian and eat absolute garbage. And so that's, <laughs> which is what I've been doing. I'm I'm slowly gaining weight, which is why I'm excited to talk about Green Chef, which is a meal delivery service that actually is delivering vegetarian meals to me that make me feel like not garbage. Green Chef, they make eating well, easy and affordable. They send the kit right to your door. I actually ordered the vegetarian option, and they sent me three meals for one week. The ingredients are already sourced. They're beautifully ripe. They're easy to put together, and the meals are delicious. So I'm, I'm hoping that now I can maybe stop eating, say, like macaroni and cheese three nights a week and actually start eating more healthfully, thanks to Green Chef. <laughs> you know, Paul, you're, you're mentioning the the eating unhealthy as, as a vegetarian, and I just, I really miss all those road trips we were going on in uh, 2019 <laughs> slash 2020 before things shut down because uh, I got to witness some of those bad food choices. And Green Chef isn't just vegetarian. They, of course, we, we were talking about keto on this episode. You can choose from keto, paleo, vegan or vegetarian meals. Some of the meals are just more balanced, so a little bit of everything. 
And I'm really excited about this too, just because I'm a bit lazy, Paul. And even though I don't always do the cooking at home, it is great to just have these beautiful meals. I mean, these meals put together, when you look at them, they just look like something that you would want to serve other people. If we were entertaining company, we would be really impressing people with these. So I'm not sure what you've tried so far, Paul, but I'm really excited to try the plant-based protein flautas, which maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, but who really cares, Paul? They look great. They have uh, corn and red peppers, refried black beans, guacamole, and cholula. And uh, what about you, Paul? What, what have you tried so far? Yeah, I think the meal I just had today, which was delightful, was maple glazed carrots over top of farro, and there was a kale salad mixed there, and there were some dried cranberries. The whole thing was delicious and, and again, made me feel better about myself than I have in in quite some time, though that's a relatively low bar to clear. (laughs) The meal that I I did have, which... My wife and I loved and my oldest son loved, he ate all the couscous, was the apricot glazed tofu with butternut squash, pearl couscous, and pistachios and tahini sauce. It was was fantastic. I, I could eat that like every day. It was amazing. So audience, if you want to try Green Chef... And you know you want to try Green Chef. You should go to greenchef.com slash 90curb and use the code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com forward slash 90curb and use the code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Well, actually, yeah, I wanted to ask, so to go back to the, the subtypes, if you don't mind talking about those a little bit more, it, it sounds, and please correct me if I'm misunderstanding, that in part they're based on the underlying neuroanatomy and sort of where the seizures are coming from. But then there's this idea uh, of intact awareness and sort of like, I, you know, I, I think early on, I thought one of, by definition, if you had intact awareness with seizures, it wasn't a seizure then. So it feels like I have misunderstood this for a long period of time. So can you talk us through, you know, we don't have to go through every single subtype, but sort of exactly yeah, how sure. some of them manifest and sort of what we should be. What, what typical stories are for sort of the, the big subtypes, if you don't mind going through them? So much like in neurology, it's all about real estate, I feel like. And so depending on where the abnormal cortical activity, you know, where this electrical firing is happening, you can get quite a few different types of, of symptoms. So intact awareness. So if, if it's not, you know, affecting your, your limbic structures and, and staying, for example, uh, let's say occipital lobe epilepsy in, in patients who are having uh, visual symptoms or form or otherwise. So they, they know something is happening and they're aware of it. So hopefully that can kind of address the intact awareness kind of component. Temporal lobe epilepsy. So, you know, depending on the hemisphere, does the patient have a deja vu or jamais vu or these psychic type feelings? Are there automatisms, for example, very classically on the, the history a gathering is very helpful. Like if the parent or the uh, significant others. Oh yeah, they're they're always chewing uh, their lips or smacking their lips or doing something like that. That kind of helps you um, on semiology. And then, um, you know, frontal lobe epilepsy is very traditionally going to be having a component of a hyperkinetic movements. So even for and and more predominant nocturnal or at sleep wake kind of intervals. So the patient can be bicycling in the middle of the night. I would say those are some of the kind of broader categories of of seizure types, temporal lobe being the most common. And with generalized is, uh, this may be a dumb question, with generalized, do they tend to be having this like tonic-clonic movements or can that 
what, what, what can the generalized look like? You just told us about the focal. Yeah. So generalized epilepsies uh, technically have a few different subtypes as well. There's like myoclonic jerks, for example, myoclonic activity that somebody can have, um, absence seizures, or, uh, you know, traditionally known like the petite mal, um, or, or a generalized epilepsy, they come on um, at once. And so those are some of the more common subtypes, I would say. That's interesting. And I then there's thought syndromes the, too. And I, I would have thought the myoclonus, because it's the, I've seen it where it involves like one limb. I would have thought that would have been more along the focal lines, but it's not. It's It comes from a generalized. Typically, yep, yeah, a, a, a discharge. Cortical myoclonus. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've told us some of what the focal epilepsy looks like and and the generalized epilepsy looks like and maybe how we can recognize cardiac. But I guess I feel a little bit better the fact that people are trying to capture this on video and you're really trying to dig into the history because it sounds like even if, if you're an expert on seizures, it's not always crystal clear if this is truly a seizure or not. But some... Um, it's it sounds like you just have to be a detective there's there's not always an easy answer. Is that correct or is it, am I just uh am I just giving myself an easy out? <laughs> <laughs> You're 100% right. So, unfortunately these episodes um most commonly the patients are not aware of what's going on, uh what's happening mm-hmm. to them. Sometimes they're not even witnesses, you know, they're they're found down um or you know, the patient there was a you know, a thud or something like that that the, the somebody is able to tell you what happened after the fact, but yeah, these 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 can be challenging in, in gathering the history. Um, but we do what we can and and try to risk stratify them too of of the risk. You know, do they have epilepsy risk factors? For example, family history of of seizures or epilepsy. Do they have a prior history of febrile seizures, CNS infections, for example, uh, concussion trauma, other things to help give your your history. And then, of course, risk stratify them further with with diagnostics. And it's all a sampling game. Uh, I shouldn't say game, but it's all about sampling. So if you can get, if you're really suspicious, getting longer EEG monitoring as well. So you can order a routine EEG, typically like 45 minutes um, there's 24 to 48 hour ambulatory EEGs. Patients can take that home. And then there's also epilepsy monitoring units that are able to do continuous video EEG monitoring because what's um, a bit challenging with any kind of paroxysmal event is how frequently does it happen? Right. Is it happening once every year um, or, or is it happening you know, several times a, a month or a week? So, so it's, there's a huge element of sampling as well. But any any kind of atypical but stereotyped event um, should always raise the concern for potential seizure, no matter how bizarre the symptoms are. If it's yeah. stereotyped, I think that's a huge clue. I think the last one to dig into. Oh, go ahead, Paul. No, I was gonna. So for the purpose of this case, let's just say this um, this patient is coming in for I don't know STI screening. Let's say something relatively banal, and then has as this witness seizure in the waiting room, and then you take them back and you're. Um, and really, this is a, a new onset seizure event. They've never had anything like this before. So you, you take your history, and, and this is what you know is what you've seen, basically. And there's there's nothing, there were no obvious other triggers at all. I guess for new seizures in an adult patient, sort of when, how aggressive are you with neuroimaging? Does that automatically earn you uh, a CT scan? Do you go right to MRI? Um, sort of what, how does neuroimaging go? And sort of what other workup do you think about? Or do you just immediately do not pass go and just send them off to a neurologist, which might be, 
which might be my move. What, what sort of image do you really think about it? <laughs> feel free to always send somebody to a neurologist. Um, I, I think if there's any like question or you know concern, that's that's a very appropriate referral. So neuroimaging wise and diagnostics. So it depends kind of in the setting. I think if they were in the ambulatory setting and having um, you know STI screening, like you mentioned, and they're back to their baseline, perhaps that that person, depending on the reliability and their follow up, you know, you can either send them. If, if it's a first-time seizure, actually, if it's a first-time seizure, I would definitely send them to an emergency department or, or try to work them in so that they can get expedited evaluation. Uh, could they have, you know, a tumor, for example, that, that triggered that first-time seizure? That's kind of my approach, at least. Um, so you want to make sure that this is an emergent, like, could it, is it a traumatic issue, for example, in the elderly, which is one of the more common populations? Kind of the children and the elderly, I would say, are, are, are the growing groups of, of people who have uh, seizures. And so you want to get a CT scan without contrast to evaluate any kind of traumatic component, of course. By and large, for a chronic process, I always think about an MRI, an MRI without gadolinium to to help an evaluation. And with a seizure protocol, you can kind of put that in the comments. Mm-hmm. And always say thank you to the neuroradiologist. Yeah. Um, a good tip. That's my strategy. And, I, and, and they'll they're able to do more thin cuts through the temporal lobes. So then you can evaluate for any potential, you know, smaller tumors or other kind of structural causes that could be um, contributing. So so CT, depending on the emergency and the acuity, um, with, with definitely an MRI at some point in the evaluation. And then if, you know, there's any kind of concern for a neoplastic process, of course, with gadolinium and, and, and kind of from there. And you mentioned the EEG as well would that be a part routine part of this for a first first seizure you would probably do an EEG as well oh uh, yeah absolutely an EEG um, is very helpful in in yeah. helping to risk stratify the the patient to help even with patients who would like to come off of medications and 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 mm-hmm. kind of conferring their risk for recurrent seizure too yeah I had read that I'm biased though <laughs> uh, I, I had read that like the EEG if it's negative, it's not as helpful. But if you if you find something interictal, like between seizures, that's abnormal, then that maybe that's a higher risk person. Do you think of it that way? Is it, in my experience, the EEG is always normal, or the person has diffuse slowing because because oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's always encephalopathic patients uh, admitted to the hospital that are getting <laughs> EEGs on. <laughs> um. Yeah, so the slowing is is sometimes can be a non is 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 a non-specific finding, generalized slowing that is, and <laughs> I think as a general uh, rule, you know, if you're not able to to capture any intraictal abnormalities, longer sampling is always yeah. you know can be a, a a good option. That's kind of like what we do with cardiac. You you kind of you pick your the cardiac monitor based on how frequently they're having events. And if it's like once every couple months or once a year, then those people get actually these implantable recorders. I don't know if there's something like that for seizures. I imagine there's some sort of very long-term monitoring. But for, for this- I think there will be yeah. in the future. Yeah. I know we always get on our internal medicine boards- the question, okay, this this 20-year-old person, 20-something person that Paul witnessed having the seizure, he was a college student and he had been drinking alcohol and uh, actually he was drinking four locos and he didn't sleep for the past 48 hours. Like 
probably that person doesn't need neuroimaging because it it was maybe quite obviously provoked. But is the workup you're talking about with CT and MRI and all that for somebody where there's no obvious provoking factor? You know, they don't have like hyponatremia or like the four loco case I just gave you, which is maybe 20, uh, 10, 15 years ago, that would have been very believable <laughs> before it was banned. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes we can see things happen, coincide. So yeah. somebody might have a provoked event. I mean, I think if it's if it's clearly like an alcohol withdrawal seizure or something like very clear cut, it's a bit easier, but oftentimes on further history gathering, you know, we we tease out and sometimes patients actually have been having these other paroxysmal events mm -hmm. or um, stereotype deja vu events, but not, not really seen someone or if it was thought to be panic disorder or something like that. So um, depending, I, th I think it all depends on the clinical history and, and the individual, but I think for a first time seizure provoked or otherwise, I think it's certainly reasonable to still get some kind of neuroimaging. Yeah. Okay. So low threat, low threshold to do that. We won't be faulted for for working up no, a, not a, at a all. new seizure in an adult in an adult patient. Correct. Sometimes I think people think, oh, it's a one time seizure. It's okay. Um, but with that definition, you know, uh, having one unprovoked uh, seizure with greater than sixty percent chance of having another one, you know, that kind of buys them that epilepsy yeah. diagnosis, and and sometimes that young. Uh, patient population, the college population that's always staying up, you know, it's it's also matches the time frame of when some of these epileptic syndromes kind of start mm -hmm. popping up. So, yeah, I, I wanted to ask, um, how how is that sixty percent determined? Is that gestalt? Are there are there tools that help get you there? Like it's a, it's such a specific number. How are you determining whether or not <laughs> someone has a sixty percent chance of a recurrent event? Yeah, so that that's determined if they had like an abnormal EEG. Um, or an abnormal MRI kind of helps uh, by that 60%. So let's say this patient here, uh, eventually he wakes up. We find out his name is Caesar Jackson, and uh, he's a little bit drowsy, but he does tell us that this is his first event. And I did want to ask you, let's say Paul was a little bit suspicious. Could this be a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure? And I made a comment about that earlier where um, uh, hopefully it didn't sound callous, but I, I have seen one of the ways that I was taught is that when patients are having these episodes, I've seen quite a few patients have them at this point, and uh, they would sort of like sometimes break out of it or break into it very abruptly. Um, and, and that was one of the ways that people would say, oh, this wasn't a real seizure because they, you know, they broke out of it to talk to us in the midst of this thing. And I, I don't know if that's a correct way to identify it. This was not a neurologist telling me that. So I would I would love to know what you think and how you identify them. So this is a huge um yeah, topic um in the in the neuro neurology world about functional neurologic disorders, um, how to manage them and follow uh these patients who um who might have uh for example, like you're saying, non-epileptic seizures. So I, I think of non-epileptic uh, seizures um, or psychogenic non-epileptic seizures as, as a subtype of a functional neurologic disorder. And they kind of are at the interface of that neurology and psychiatry. You know, the mind is 
the mind brain continuum is it's all one thing but <laughs> the, you know we, <laughs> the mind have, brain continuum oh my gosh <laughs> but we you know i think for the for sake of medicine they're they're kind of categorized separately but oftentimes these these patients and individuals will have these paroxysmal it can be events that appear convulsive or alterations in their behavior and consciousness that resemble epileptic seizures but they're not associated with any electrical, like with any abnormal cortical activity. Um, and that's the key. And the gold standard is capturing one of these events, if you can, on EEG, and then you're able to make that, that diagnosis confidently. Um, and these are, these are extremely, f- very frequent and prevalent, I would say. There's also a coincidence of non-epileptic events and epileptic events. Um, seizures, by the way, and, and approximately 10%. Sometimes the literature says about 20%. But that's also important because two things can always happen together. I mean, I think I think the estimated prevalence for non-epileptic seizures is, is about, it can occur in up to 20% of civilians, is, is what I've read worldwide. So um, wow. it's a very, very common yeah thing. And so neurologists are, are trying to better understand this. And, and the patients are not you know, they're not faking the event or the episode. The The symptoms and events are very real. And so I think it's really important to diagnose them as early as possible and get them on the right treatment plan, which is going to be a combination of a few different things. It can be the gold standard is a cognitive behavioral therapy approach. And so that you know, the earlier we get that diagnosis for the person and and hopefully adopt that kind of treatment algorithm, that they'll be able to improve. And so. And you give the patient the diagnosis or you say, do you say, well, you know, I don't think they're true seizures when we, when we get you, when we get you on the monitor, we don't see the seizure activity. So, you know, I don't think you actually have epilepsy. Is that, you tell them that or. They used to call these pseudo seizures, but I'm not, mm-hmm. how how do you explain it to a patient? Yeah, so it's a very great question, and I think it's it's always kind of like that shared decision making process with the patient and the family, and seeing the adoption of that diagnosis in in real time. And so, of course, the 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 news is that there's no abnormal like electrical activity that's causing these these symptoms and then kind of talking about that that mind brain continuum kind of conversation that these can be external manifestations of either feelings of of stress and bottling them in or or this is you know a way of of almost the symptoms coming out without you even being aware and so that's kind of why the cognitive behavioral therapy is such an effective treatment in in being able mm-hmm. to better you know understand these even when the patient does not have for example, an acute stressor going on, you know, so. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's a, it's just one of those challenging, we're, we're, you know, Paul, we're, we're used to this. There's, there's a lot of things akin to this in internal medicine. Uh, it's where it's, it's just difficult to talk to patients about it. Matt, let me, let me throw a theoretical your way. Let's, let's pretend for a second <laughs> that I was dissatisfied with, with my job on the podcast. Let's just say 
theoretically and and purely theoretically that there was a host who just kept sort of stepping on the points that I was making, maybe interrupted frequently, was very distractible. <laughs> Let's say, for instance, that I just I found the workplace just untenable anymore and I felt just sort of underappreciated and I was thinking about leaving. What might you do to fill what would be an enormous void left by my absence? You know, if Stuart was here on this episode, I would think you were talking about him. But since it's just me and you, I'm worried that you're talking about me. And, you know, (laughs) Paul, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Indeed, but if you're going to have to go out and leave the podcast, then I just might have to make a job posting because I'm not looking to mess around. And I know that anything other than Indeed is not going to do what I need when I'm hiring a new podcast co-host. Because I'm not looking to waste my time, and I want to get great people as fast as possible. So Indeed actually can sort through millions of resumes in their database and help find me great candidates instantly with their Instant Match feature. With Instant Match, I'm going to get a great list of candidates right away, Paul. So that means I will find a new co-host right away. I feel like you took this from theoretical to concrete, like, real quick. Um, I feel like you've maybe been thinking about this a little bit. (laughs) Maybe we should sleep on it, cool it off. (laughs) If you want your quality shortlist fast, you need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. And that's all one word, no space. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. This offer is valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. I guess uh, with with our patient, Mr. Jackson here, um, how are we going to decide if we're going to treat him or not? Let's say he gets an MRI. Uh, we we put in the little wink, smiley face to the neuroradiologist. <laughs> they hook us up with some thin slices through the temporal lobes, and uh, we don't we don't really find anything. No tumors, um, no scarring, and he tells us he hasn't had like prior meningitis doesn't seem to be provoked by anything. So how would you decide? You mentioned a couple of times like their risk of recurrence. Are there calculators we can use or how do you know if their risk of recurrence is greater than 60% or not? Yeah, that's a, a, a that's an excellent question. So the patient who has a first time seizure, you work them up, everything is normal. The risk of having a second, you know, unprovoked seizure is is about 33% actually. So it, it be kind of becomes that that shared decision making with the patient. You know, sometimes it only takes one seizure and the person's like, I can never do this. Like I this can never happen again. I, I want that insurance policy of being started on an anti seizure medication. And other times um people might not necessarily want a pharmacologic treatment and they'll want to assess and see if they'll have another episode. And so it's it's kind of a personalized choice. We we talked a little bit about initiation of medications for this patient. I, I think for me, uh, oftentimes the initial medication of choice when medication is chosen is somewhat of a mystery. Like I'm never quite entirely clear. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce uh, levetiracetam or like I, usually I just go with the, the trade name. So I just say it really quickly and hope no one calls me on it. So I, I guess what I'd like to hear, if you don't mind, is tell us sort of about your general approach to choosing a medication for someone who who is going to be treated for seizure disorder or for epilepsy and what, how you think about what to prescribe and, and just go through your process. If you don't, I, never, I realize that this could be a whole two hour talking of itself, but just for, <laughs> for, for, for dumb, dumb me, if you could simplify it, that'd be very helpful. Yeah. So it's, um, 
It's a very like personalized and individual approach, of course. And and the goal I always think of for patients is to you know to try to get rid of the seizures, to reduce the seizure frequency, and then at the same time improve their quality of life. So, um, how do you make sure to limit any potential side effects? Um, and so that's kind of the approach. So it's always appropriate, you know, if, if to send a patient to a neurologist or an epileptologist, um, if, if you have questions for, for medications, that's a, that's a great um, referral. Um, I routinely think about the comorbidities somebody has when selecting an anti-seizure medication. So do they have comorbid migraine, depression, anxiety, uh, things like that that I don't want to necessarily worsen or that I can treat? Do they have like a neuropathy going on as well? So there are a lot more medications today than there were um, a few decades ago, fortunately. So common medications, for example, lacosamide, lamotrigine, levetiracetam that you said so beautifully um, are, are very common ones that you see. And, and actually, I recently read this article in, in Epilepsia, one of the journals, and it referenced this app that's been validated by experts to provide like an objective, reproducible method for selecting an anti-seizure medication. So I think that could be a potentially really interesting tool. And it was um, it was called epipic.org, E-P-I-P-I-C-K.org. I actually just tried it <laughs> yes last night. I wanted to see how it worked. And so you can put an age, you know, certain comorbidities, and it it like almost gives you the medications and, and the starting doses. So so that could be a potential <laughs> no, uh, tool for you, Paul. Um, just someone so, to tell me the answer. That's all we ever want yeah, on the show. We, <laughs> someone tell me what to do. Paul, you've been asking for that for like many shows recently, and this is oh. the first time someone's actually told you what to do. Oh. That's <laughs> so, so that, that's, that's a potential tool. But yeah, so it, so it depends, you know, what their comorbid. Do they have bipolar disorder? Maybe are going to be leaning more toward like lamotrigine or, or carbamazepam, um, migraine. You're thinking topiramate, potentially gabapentin if they have comorbid neuropathy or trigeminal neuralgia, a tremor, you know, certain certain kinds of, of comorbidities help, the type of seizures that they have classically, and then what comorbidities do they have? You know, do they have a cardiac arrhythmia or something like that? I don't want to be picking a medication that's going to worsen that and, and really that mood element. So um, trying to pick something that's going to be more mood neutral if, if there's comorbid uh, mood uh, disorders, which are extremely common in patients with with seizure disorders. So I hope I answered that in a nutshell. But there's a lot to think about, of course, and it's like the personalized approach. Mm-hmm. No, that's very helpful. Um, of the common medications, we're going to be seeing patients that they'll see you, and then they're coming to see us in our uh, Cashlack regional practice, and we have what sort of things might we need to monitor. If they sometimes they fall off seeing the specialist, and then I have this patient who's on like carbamazepine, and I'm seeing them, and I'm just you know what I have to look up like what what should I be monitoring here? Uh, any with the common seizure medications, if we're in primary care and we're seeing patients on these, anything we have to pay attention to? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So carbamazepine, for instance, or like any of the um, P450 inducers, <laughs> um, of, you know, or some of these medications can cause um, osteoporosis. So vitamin D supplementation is important. So checking their vitamin D levels, um, you know, and supplementing even if they, they were normal. Um, but 
and and we're talking, I guess, in a once, you know, somebody who's established established uh, patient, patients, yeah. established patient. So, sort of like routine seizure medication levels is is certainly appropriate with routine labs like a CBC, CMP, um, at least annually. I would say I, I, I can check if if somebody's established and stable. And and traditionally, if if patients who have been on um, some of the older medications like venetone, for example, you know, if we can transition them to newer medications, there's a lot less monitoring and and potential side effects too. So that's some of the considerations I think about. Can I ask you to speak on some of the, the non-medication options? I think specifically the things I'm asked about, and I think I've seen on, on board exams are like ketogenic diet, sort of diet treatment. I, again, recognizing this is a whole other lecture unto itself, but if you could just talk about general considerations in terms of dietary management of, of seizure disorder, that would be helpful. Yeah, dietary. So dietary falls in that, like the alternatives to anti-seizure medications. And I have co-authored a paper on when drugs don't work um, as well. So specifically with, with diet, typically ketogenic diet is going to be the case like later in the treatment algorithm. So not as the only means of, of treating a seizure disorder. And um, it's it's absolutely reasonable to refer patients who are wanting to be very serious about a, a potential dietary trial. So they'll need like a dietitian. They need to check if they're in ketosis. I mean, depending on Mm -hmm. how serious it's going to be versus like potentially, you know, the modified Atkins diet. But these these traditionally don't replace medications, but, you know, it's something that they can try. And in the adult population, there's a bit of limited data available, but traditionally in the pediatric um, patient population, there have been uses of ketogenic diet to reduce seizure frequency. And that's seen almost like approximately 40 to 70% of pediatric patients can experience a reduction of, of up to fi- like greater than 50%. So it's it's very compelling. And there there are like adult studies and, and looking at that. And, you know, nearly half of the patients might have equal or greater than 50% seizure reduction. About a third have been noted in one um, study to have like no improvement about 10% were unable to complete it because it's a very strict diet. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very I strict diet. I hope you diet. like mayonnaise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so so it, it, it requires a lot of counseling and, and, and management. So we will refer patients to, to a dietitian as well. Um, and so those are some of the considerations, of course, and making sure there's no undesired weight loss, other kinds of symptoms, uh, potential adverse effects. And and so the, that's kind of my thoughts on the ketogenic approach. Yeah, the ketogenic diet thing is is interesting because supposedly J.J. Abrams, uh, the, the guy from Lost and the Star Wars movies, his son has, uh, I believe he has a foundation called the Charlie Foundation for his son, who I believe is now an adult. But his son was had refractory seizures, and I guess doing research, he found that someone at Hopkins was, I, I believe it was Hopkins, uh, was doing research on ketogenic diet for seizures, and, and I think that's one of the ways it became popular, popularized in the past couple decades of using this to treat seizures, and then somehow now it's just spread to the public, and people are using it for like bodybuilding and weight loss and all these other things now too. But uh, it's just an interesting story. We should uh, we should probably talk about with Mr. Jackson. Let's say we just put him on Levitier Acetam, just because it's easy to say, and uh, that's the, <laughs> that's what that's what most people seem to be put on. 
and uh, we we're now going to send him back out into the wild. He hasn't had any further seizures. We did uh, we did the MRI, we did the EEG, nothing interictally. All his labs looked okay. Um, he he now wants to know. I mean, he's a truck driver, so fingers crossed. Can he go back to work? Um, so driving is a huge aspect um, in in counseling uh, patients with any kind of episode of loss of awareness, um, whether it is you know syncope, for example, or or an epileptic seizure. So the, there are a lot of driving laws, like state specific laws. So I would have to reference, you know, depending on the state, for example, yeah. um, I'm in Arizona, so three months uh, without having any episode of um, alternate alteration. Um, I'd have to look up kind of the, the truck driving laws or what what those are, but it's it's important piece, right? Because yeah. the, their independence, I mean, is heavily affected. Fortunately, there's Lyft and Uber and, and, and other right. um, services nowadays. So, so the driving piece is huge. And then the seizure precautions in general or strategies how to reduce your risk of, of a seizure-related injury because patients with seizures can have a lot of physical health components. They can have fractures or some serious burns, for example, or other serious bodily injury. So the, the keys, uh, the things that I think about, of course, that you all do so well <laughs> as well when you discharge these patients is going to be safety. So wearing a helmet um, when bicycling or if you're horseback riding or, or something like that. Um, supervision around any kind of water. So if you're swimming or at the spa or, you know, of course, using a shower rather than a bathtub, um, if you're able to use a microwave versus a stovetop, um, using an epilepsy safety pillow, for example, which was designed to reduce your risk of a potential, you know, suffocation of lying face down. There, there are quite a bit heights, avoiding high ladders, for example, following driving regulations, trying to take medications as prescribed avoiding locking the bedroom or bathroom if somebody were to have an event. So uh, those are some of the main things that I think about, um, safety being the big one. So you and, know, if, if somebody were to have a seizure while out swimming or in the bathtub, there can be pretty um, life-threatening yeah. outcome. So. so as we mentioned before, uh, he likes to stay up all night drinking for loco. Uh, let's say it still has uh, caffeine. It's It's alcohol and caffeine and uh, he just likes to stay up. He sleeps a couple hours a night. Does he have to give up alcohol? And how how much does he have to sleep? Can he continue this fun 20, 20 something lifestyle? That <laughs> um, so so um, like patients who have seizures, for example, like the college age patient, of yeah. course. Um, is this is very common uh, counseling. So in general, we always talk about. It. Uh, sleep hygiene and seizure, you know, stress reduction, sleep hygiene, of course, avoiding um, alcohol. That's not to say they'll never have an alcoholic beverage ever, but if if they can help themselves in not having uh, ways to reduce their seizure threshold, because it's always, you know, yeah. I kind of always outline and say, hey, everyone has a seizure threshold. I have one, you have one, and, and the medications help raise that threshold. And so things that can lower it, you know, we don't want these uh breakthrough seizures popping through so that's kind of how i i, I think about it so i forgot to mention he's quitting decision. smoking he's he's trying to quit smoking as well and he's on bupropion 
He also has chronic back pain. He takes tramadol for that. Sure. And, uh, Perfect. Paul, anything else? What else? What else does he have? Any other uh, common? Is he on <laughs> penicillin or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> or some antibiotic? Yeah. Well, this has been great. I think, unless Paul has other questions, Paul, are we missing anything? I mean, I know we've left we a lot on the table, but <laughs> what else? What else do we need to ask out before we let Sarah go? Well, I think one thing that I, I hope it's okay that I wanted to cover to go back to, Sarah, you'd actually mentioned about comorbid depression in patients with seizure disorder. So in terms of considerations that we can actually address as primary care doctors, it seems like that's actually doing the reading much more prevalent than I think I was aware of. So I wonder if you wouldn't speak to sort of how common it is and what your approach is to patients who have um, both seizure disorder and depression or anxiety. Yes. Um, thank you for that question. So patients who have um epilepsy, um, have a higher risk of mood disorders like anxiety, depression, um, attention deficit disorder. There's um, a few really excellent review articles um, on this on this topic for, for primary care and kind of the comorbidities of epilepsy. I highly recommend by uh, doctors Joseph Servant and Catherine Noe. I can put those in, in a link. Um, but But the emotional health aspect is huge because People with epilepsy have increased lifetime risk that is, you know, two to three times more likely to have depression, anxiety, and are twice as likely to report having increased um, risk of suicidal ideation and three times more likely to die of, of suicide. So, so it's a, it's a big, it's a big element of our, you know, day-to-day interactions with patients with epilepsy. So I, I do want to make a note that you know, we commonly get asked about SSRIs and SRNRIs and, and, you know, bupropion or, or other um, agents. But the, the key is ultimately um, having their mood disorders also stable because that can beget the seizures and vice versa. If you're having increased seizure frequency, that's not going to be um, positive with your mood. So so it's never like a hard stop to to stop one of those medications. Um, it's just kind of a an ongoing discussion with you know their psych, psycho, psychiatrist or or so so, and we we commonly will start SSRIs as well on patients. Yeah, I I hadn't realized that it was such a big overlap there, and I guess maybe part of it's like, is it that people with mental health or mood disorders are more likely to have seizures, or is it that right. um, there's there are they causative, you know, or is it just just an association? And, and I guess. Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know that, or it's it's impossible to know that. And I and I also had never, Paul. I was also just reading about this that seizures are like stigmatizing for patients, which is something that I hadn't really thought about either. Um, I di- I didn't realize how affecting it is, and I'm not sure if there's resources for patients that you recommend for for them coping with that part of things, Sarah. Absolutely, it is heavily stigmatized, and. Um... I would say even you know today, um, but but epilepsy is, is one of the most common neurologic conditions uh, worldwide. Uh, Sixty-five million people in the you know around the world have epilepsy. Over three million in the U.S. and one in twenty-six people in the U.S. can develop epilepsy at some point in their lifetime. So it's it's super common. Um, I I love the epilepsy.com uh, website that I refer patients to because it's managed by a bunch of physicians who put this content in, and it's a very nice streamlined process and centralized resource. They have information on seizures, you know, alternative, everything kind of we discussed. So even alternatives, for example, 
epilepsy surgery, which is an option for patients who have um, focal epilepsy, for instance, and who, who meet that drug-resistant subtype. Also, devices, for example, uh, which we, <laughs> we didn't talk about as, as much in detail, but there, there are neurostimulation devices to, to help treat your epilepsy. So there, there's a lot out there. Um, and so I like the Epilepsy Foundation, that website. It's, it's an excellent resource. They can take basic first aid certification, a, a lot of things, and, and get some homework on, on there too. But it's, it's heavily stigmatized. Anything else that your your friendly primary care doctor can help your friendly neighborhood epileptologist with? Like, I feel like oftentimes with your disorder, you're like, okay, that's that's your neurologist problem. Godspeed and good luck. Like, is there anything else in terms of comorbid things that are very common or other are there practical things that we can sort of do to help help coordinate their care? I I think um, the the mood disorders is a huge one that we talked about, which is which is great. The physical health kind of aspects, you know, the accidents and injuries. The big one is definitely like early referral to a neurologist or um, to an epileptologist. If the patient has not responded to one or two medications, I think it's absolutely reasonable. There's there's a very um, kind of a late referral process in the country for <laughs> for decades because it, it almost takes like 15 years to get a patient into that epilepsy surgery evaluation. But if a patient is highly motivated, you know, we can we can get them to to that pre-surgical evaluation, like I would say, um, very commonly within six months. So so wow. try to treat their seizures like you know as aggressively as we can um, if if they don't respond. But the majority of you know epilepsy does respond to one or two medications. But of course, a subset, you know, about a third of um, of the intractable epilepsies, we, we want to be able to treat those and evaluate those um, as soon as we can. So, All right. So I think uh, we'll give you a chance. Any? Uh, do you want to plug your website? And can people follow you on Twitter? Are you on Twitter or other other platforms? Um, nothing to plug, I guess. Oh, I have, I have a Twitter account, um, at Dr. Sarah DeWitt. Um, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes our audience members, they'll reach out to our guests after the episode, asking them just like follow up questions or, uh, they'll tag, we'll, we'll tag you when we send out this episode while we release it. And, uh, you might get some follow up questions there. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been really fun. Same here. I learned a ton of stuff from you. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Ketones? <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. So we want your feedback. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook, Tima Karganov does our website, and uh, Stuart Brigham does our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And a reminder that we have VCU Health Continuing Education, who has been nice enough to provide free CME credit 
for this episode and many other Curbsiders episodes at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.